I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. I am really excited about our guest for today, Melanie Rogers. She is a dear friend. She is an incredible colleague. And I think you're all going to feel just as much love for her at the end of this podcast as I do. What's really fun about today's podcast is Melanie is talking about learning to trust your body. I can just imagine my clients right now saying, that is the last thing I can or want to do. It is an important integral part of the recovery process. It's frightening and you will get there. It's fun. Melanie talks about trusting her body. Melanie brings in her own daughter's experience about how she experiences food, which by the way, is from the eyes and the stomach of a child. And it's really special because there was a time when all of us knew how to feed ourselves when we were hungry and stop when we were full. So I think this is going to be a fun podcast. We talk about normal eating. We talk about how we're wired to seek out variety in foods. So I hope you all enjoy the podcast as much as I did recording it. Okay, let's have fun. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am so honored to have our guest on today, uh, Melanie Rogers, beautiful soul, dear friend, dear colleague, dietitian, and Melanie is here as our guest today. So first, I would like to say, welcome, Melanie. Thanks so much, Karen. It is so delightful to see you and, and be here today. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So, Melanie, what I'd love for you to do is I would love to just start. So you have this amazing treatment center in New York City called Balance, and it's just wonderful. So would you mind just telling listeners a little bit about what you do and about the center? And then we'll sort of go in more towards to the podcast questions. Absolutely. Yep. So I started Balance about 11 years ago, Karen, um, because I'm here in New York City, as you said. Uh, at that time, believe it or not, there was only one outpatient treatment here in, in New York City, right? And we know the stats on, you know, how many people struggle with an eating disorder. And we know that that is a vast uh, lack of resources uh, for such a large city. And so I just felt 
clinically, I wouldn't say obligated, I felt clinically compelled to provide more resources. At the time, I had a a group private practice of nutritionists working with me and we were specialising in eating disorders and uh, there was just so, so much need. So I, uh, I've put together a team of therapists and, and nutritionists and uh, clinical director and, and the, whole, uh, the whole piece and uh, here we are 11 years later and we have a full day program which is 30 hours a week an evening program, Saturday programming, you know, one night a week groups from body image to radically open DBT um, and uh, a men's group, body image, etc. And then, of course, we do one-on-one counselling. So uh, we do one-on-one for nutrition counselling and also therapy and then uh, family work, etc. So we try in that, in that arrangement to offer, you know, three to four different levels of care for clients who are not quite at that acuity level where they're going to need to go to residential, which is 24-7, and that's where you kind of stay somewhere for two months. So in this scenario, our clients are coming to us and then going home in the evening or they're coming to us and they're they're doing life in addition to, to their treatment. And I have to say it has been one of the hardest things I've done, um, aside from being a mum. <laughs> It's a, yeah, and, and perhaps like being a mum and a parent, it's also one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. I have grown so much through through this experience, not just clinically, which, you know, is, is I, I love learning and I love trying to provide the latest research, the latest treatment modalities. My goal in doing what we do is if there's any way we can shorten the treatment, if there's any way we can reduce the relapse rates, if there's any way that we can continue to improve treatment for our clients. Um, I'm, I'm always looking at, at ways to try to do that. Um, so certainly a lot of growth there for me. Um, and also um, from a professional perspective of running my own business, you know, I have um, a team of 25 employees now um, and learning, learning, business skills and uh, learning how to run a business at that level and continue to build it and improve it so it doesn't collapse in on itself as we grow, making sure our systems, you know, keep up with demand, all of that good stuff. Um, There's been a lot of learning there as well. That stuff is necessary and sometimes, honestly, not as interesting. I love the clinical. For me, it's all about the clients. Right. It's all about it's all about knowing, as you know, Karen, and part of your podcast, the focus is we know what life looks like on the other side of the velvet rope. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now if we both were still in our, our eating disorders because I know for myself I wouldn't have the bandwidth. And so I want other people who are struggling to know and to be able to move beyond and move over the other side of the velvet rope so they can get on with life, you know? Listening to to your story of the passion that you put into the business, the clients, your staff, being a mother, these are all the things that I say to clients, you are so brilliant in your eating disorder. If you apply that somewhere else, it is amazing. 
what you will succeed. That doesn't mean you have to succeed by going into the field of treating eating disorders. That doesn't mean succeeding is obviously a personal decision, but all I, I'm trying to imagine because I've started programs before and run programs and all these things, there isn't enough time to be in both an eating disorder and in the world in that way, right? Absolutely. And any, and even if you do try, you just don't have the bandwidth. You just can't possibly give it the depth of focus, you know, right to the core of you. You just can't because that eating disorder just takes so much energy and distraction because we know because it's you've got the thoughts playing all the time in your head. So you can't fully focus on any other thing or person truly uh, to the degree that you maybe desire to. Yeah. It's also, you know, what, what is so, you know, again, talking about what people can do outside of the eating disorder, imagine how much thinking or cognition it takes to be sitting in front of somebody looking like you're paying attention in a meeting when you're in your eating disorder mind, yet still oddly getting little kernels from the meeting. So you sound like, you know, what's happening. Also, relationships. Absolutely. You can't give to relationships when half of you or all of you is shut down in an eating disorder mind. Let me ask you a question, and I say this in all the podcasts, the, the definition is different for everybody. How would you define being recovered? Being recovered, how would I define it? Um, what I, my experience is being fully recovered for me means food is 110% neutral. It doesn't, I don't look at pizza or burgers or fries or sushi or salad and think, okay, what is the caloric content here? Is this going to end up on my hips? Like there's just not a conversation around that in my head. And that, oh my goodness, doesn't that just open up a, a whole a whole heap of space in your mind? Right. So absolute food neutrality. I eat um, truly all foods fit. Um, I know that's a, a you know a, a model that people may be familiar with. Very much intuitive eating. I eat when I'm hungry. I stop when I feel, I'm full. It's about satiety. It's about preference. I love my Doritos. I don't think, oh my goodness, if I have another portion, another serving of Doritos, am I going to gain weight? It's just not there. Because I think also, Karen, what comes with being fully recovered is a trust in your body and a trust in your hunger and your fullness and satiety that your body will put the brakes on when you're done. And I can only, I don't know when I'm done. I can only listen to my body telling me I'm done. So for example, last night I was watching some, I don't know, TV show and I noticed I wanted something crunchy and salty. So I went and got another serving of, um, um, you know, some chips and, uh, and I was, I have to say, I did think, gosh, we're sheltering in place. Um, I love my chips. Uh, you know, I, I've been looking at my my walker on my phone where it tells you how many yeah. steps you take. Uh, not for I, I've been interested in it because it's completely <laughs> flat right now. Do you know what's so scary though? I've been taking photos of it because that's my only activity. Like I don't go to the gym, I don't do anything like that. So anyway, it did cross my mind. I was thinking, oh yeah, these crisp, these chips. 
And then I noticed as I got halfway through, because I'm watching the TV, so I'm doing all the things that, you know, supposedly you're not supposed to do, which is eating mindlessly in front of the TV. And then I pushed them away. And then later, as I was finishing up and cleaning up before I went to bed, I realized that, you know, I had eaten half or three quarters of them, but there was still a whole heap left in the bowl. And, uh, and it was just kind of like, oh, I guess I, I lost the taste for them somewhere along the line and threw them out and went to bed and didn't think of it. And I'm only thinking of it now because we're, we're thinking about what does recovered look like? And, um, and so I guess I hope what that example uh, suggests or captures is that there isn't a worry. And I can't even tell you how unbelievable that is because in our eating disorder day, there, there was always worry. There was just constant worry. So that piece about recovery, um, um, and I would say recovered is also as importantly, so I talked more about the nutritional and food attitudes. Um, there's a body image piece there that's very important. And it's this is a tough one. And I, I, I'm, continuing, I'm continuing to, to monitor this because in our society as a woman, you just don't get a break. And, and also the other piece is I had my eating disorder in my 20s. I'm now a 50-year-old woman. And I remember Carolyn Coston, who was a guest of yours as well and a mentor and friend to both of us, uh, I remember her saying something a couple of years ago, which is, now I'm dealing with ageing. Yes. <laughs> you know, and, and that's my reality. And it's like you just don't get a break. And so it's either, you know, as my wise grandmother said, you either embrace it or you spend the rest of your life fighting against something that is inevitable. So, again, this body image piece, I think, because it shifts and, and morphs um, from – the thin stuff, so I'm, I'm kind of made my piece around accepting my body for what it is genetically and I'm very focused on the gratitude for what my body can do. So, for example, as a, as a woman, um, I chose to have a child and so the fact that my body could, could, could go through a pregnancy and do all that miraculous stuff, I'm in awe of that. Um, and now I'm out the other side and it's like, okay, the aging stuff. Oh boy, here we go. It's still body image stuff. Right. And I need to figure out a way to be okay with that without bankrupting my stuff on myself on creams and lotions and yes. Botox. <laughs> so, so that's a little bit about body image. And I guess the last piece and, and, and very importantly is the psychological piece, um, which, which is really about, um, uh, you know, for many of us, um, my goodness, working with a therapist is an essential piece of recovery and continuing that work. So for 80% of us with an eating disorder, we struggle with anxiety and or depression. I have had an eating disorder. I had that genetic predisposition and, okay, statistically, I have anxiety and depression. Um, so no joke there. So what I think is essential and not just what I think, what we know from the research, Karen, is I must continue to take care of my mental health. I must continue to take care of my anxiety and depression, which means therapy because we know talk therapy is essential. And if needed, medication, which is, which is my situation as well. So I have a, a great team of a psychiatrist and a therapist, and that's how I moderate and contain my anxiety so that it doesn't become full-blown depression. But even more importantly, when we talk about what is full recovery, we still have the genetic predisposition to go back into our illness should we lose weight or should we get overly anxious or should there be some kind of massive hurdle 
where suddenly our brain says, oh, why don't you just lose some weight? So in order to avoid myself from ever getting to a situation of massive overwhelm that might ever, ever, ever lead me to consider, let me just lose some weight, I manage my anxiety and depression and that's something I'll need to do for the rest of my life. So when, again, to summarise that about what does full recovery look like, I don't use my eating disorder at all, at all. It's just not existent. But there are these other things that I tend to and continue to do so uh, to make sure that it's also nothing, not something that I would ever need to rely on and have it resurface again sometime in the future. You just summed up the the purpose of this podcast. Melanie, you are so beautiful. Your vulnerability and honesty. By the way, life can life is complicated. I'm not saying it as a pessimist. I'm just saying it as a realist. And what people often don't understand is that, say for your situation and for mine, depression and anxiety were were well on their way before my behavior started. So when the behavior stopped, I still had to manage, learn how to live in a world with anxiety and depression. And I had to learn how to live in a world where we still have a cultural norm of what aging looks like, what thin ideals look like, all of these things that I think sometimes our clients think we are immune to all of this. Not true. Not true. I also want to point out, and I think I've said this in other other episodes, even if you've never had an eating disorder, you are not immune to body image distortion, the diet industry, you know, never too thin, never too rich mantra. These things are around us all the time. We're not like, we don't have an extra special gene that says, oh, we don't even hear it anymore. Well, well, actually we hear less of it because we put everything in perspective, but that's exactly what this podcast is about. People still need therapy, medication, keep their mind in check you know, have their healthy voice. And I I just love what you just said. And I, I just, yeah, I just wanted to, to point that out. Let me ask you a question. By the way, I recommend anybody go to your website because it is filled with information. One of the things you talk about on your website is normal eating. How do you, because, you know, here you're sitting here saying I'm sitting there and I'm eating the chips and blah, 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 whatever. What, what is normal eating to you? How do you define it for clients? How do you live it, embrace it, things like that? Yeah, um, it's a great question because normal eating does mean different things to different people uh, because, you know, um, family culture, how you grew up, all of that good stuff. Um, Normal eating for me is is the lack of obsessiveness for sure. So I'll just start with the head stuff, you know. So there's not a head spin around it. You're eating foods that you truly enjoy. You're eating them for pleasure. And, um, and, and honestly, what that also means is that sometimes you're overly full. So, you know, my, one of mm. my favorite foods is lasagna or, and risotto. Um, 
And I mean, those are two meals that I can leave the dinner table and my t- my stomach can be a little bit uh, a li- hurting a little bit because it's just like, oh my God, I love this. <laughs> um, and then I'll eat lasagna for the next two or three days and then, and then I'm done. Um, so, so, you know, normal eating is yes, intuitive eating, as we mentioned earlier, but it's also, you know, sometimes if I'm with my daughter, for example, and it's summertime and she's like, mommy, mommy, can we get an ice cream? Because she sees the ice cream man, the ice cream truck. It doesn't, I'm not necessarily hungry right then, but it's like, it's summertime. It's hot. We're going to have an ice cream. Let's have an ice cream. So it's situational. Sorry, go ahead, Karen. No, 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 no. That's just it. It's sometimes it's situational. Sometimes it's creating an experience, right? Who doesn't think of the ice cream truck and ice cream cones and all that good stuff. Who doesn't associate that with summer? You're not always hungry when the ice cream man comes. That's not the point. Absolutely not. But as my daughter likes to say, you know, this arm mummy is the dinner arm, dinner food arm, and this (laughs) arm is the ice cream and chocolate arm, and that arm is still empty. Don't you love it? So, um, so that's how she could accommodate that. I'm so full, mummy. I don't want any more dinner, but I'll definitely have ice cream and chocolate. You know. So, oh, it's hilarious to see how kids wrap their head around this. So, um, so you know, I take a leaf out of her book and and normal eating. And again, you know, when we think about recovery, if I was still in my eating disorder, I would avoid that. I would say, no, honey, you have the ice cream. Mummy's okay for right now. Mummy's not hungry. Whatever. And you lose that enjoyment of having that experience with your kid, you know, Um, because as we know, food is an important part of our culture. It's an important part of how we celebrate and how we do things and how we socialize and these sorts of things. So normal eating is about anything to do with food or around food doesn't dictate whether I do or do not participate. So if friends call up and say, hey, Mel, let's go out for dinner, my thought process is, oh, my God, it better be sushi because if it's not sushi, I can't go because, you know, or or I have to know what the restaurant is so I can scan the menu online first and call the restaurant to see how a dish is prepared. It just doesn't exist. It's just not happening. So normal eating is the beauty of spontaneity, um, the beauty of the ice cream with your kid, the beauty of it it doesn't matter sometimes if you're not hungry. Um, It's it's the experience of it. and also for me, normal eating is uh, not about rules. And so it's not no carbs or low carbs or, or this diet or that diet or seeking out the next diet. That stuff is exhausting and there's so much bad misinformation and pseudoscience out there, Karen. As a registered dietitian and, and, and person who really values research, as I know you do, um, it is horrendous what is out there in the health, so-called health and wellness um, area, you know, in the industry. So, um, so just, just really, I think wearing blinders to all of that and enjoying my food for what it is, which nourishes my body, fuels my body. Um, I'm not a big cook, so I don't get a lot of pleasure out of cooking meals. Honestly, I order in. I live in New York. Yeah, you're preaching to the <laughs> choir about not cooking. I've had many people say, but you're a nutritionist. You're supposed to love cooking. And I'm like, ah, no, <laughs> don't want to do it. Um, so, so for me, you know, in a nutshell, I guess, those are some of the tenets of normal eating for me, which is, as I said, no stress, no obsessing. It is what it is. It can be spontaneous and, and fluid. 
and <clears throat> excuse me, and there's no right or wrong, and there's definitely no rules, you know. And you know what's amazing, Karen? Just one point I want to point out there is um, what I found through my recovery and where I am now is that your cravings you can you can really listen to your cravings as well, and and you can interpret them. So my cravings sometimes if um let's say i mentioned lasagna or risotto or whatever let's say i've been eating more of what society calls carb heavy meals um and i've been a little low on my salad and my broccoli and my vegetables for a few days in a row and then i'll sit down and i will crave vegetables and i don't know if you experience this as well and because right now with what's happening getting fresh produce is a little bit more difficult than it has been right um and so i find when we run out i'm just craving you know and so again that's part of what is normal eating is listening to your body and your body's going to direct you and i could see you had a response to that i'm gonna i'm gonna share something that i read years ago i'm probably gonna share it incorrectly but i it's i think the concept is going to be correct so as you're saying this, I'm thinking Janine Roth, Janine Roth, Janine Roth. So for those of you who do not know, and I'll say the name one more time, Janine Roth is a phenomenal author. Uh, she wrote When Food is Love. Um, I know she's written other things. Uh, I've heard her speak. Janine talks just about that aspect, that our bodies actually, if you stop, listen, and pay attention your body knows what it wants. She referenced something in, in her book, When Food is Love, or maybe it was in a talk that she thought if she sat down and ate chocolate chip cookie dough once, she would just eat it and eat it and eat it. And she made this reference like she would eat it from one end of the country to the next. She said, and you know what happened after about a day of eating cookie dough? I kind of wanted a vegetable. I wanted a piece of chicken. That is how intuitive our bodies are, but we stop listening. Do you, like, did you hear how brilliant your daughter is? Oh, I'm full. Yeah, the dinner part of me, totally full. Ice cream part, mm -mm, not yet. And you know what I bet? I bet your daughter ate until she was like, okay, now I'm done with the, the ice cream part is full and walked away. She may have finished it, may not. Children are amazing, right? Oh my goodness, Karen, go on, yes. No, I'm just saying, that's all I kept thinking about was this, this moment. And again, forgive me, Janine Roth, if I'm saying it incorrectly, but it was something to that effect. Our bodies know. And um, the, the image I have from reading one of the Janine Roth books, um, Karen, um, is the idea of like a pillowcase of your favorite food. So maybe it's the cookies or the cookie dough or in my case, Doritos, a pillowcase full over my shoulder and I just take it with me all the time, everywhere I go, and that's all I eat. And, and it's actually called um, taste fatigue. Say it one more time. Right? Taste fatigue. Taste fatigue. Okay. It's taste fatigue. And um, and what's really interesting about that is that, yes, and, and your body starts to crave and tell you because we're actually designed to seek out variety. This is something, you know, I can totally nerd out on this, but if you think about it, we're wired to seek out variety, which is part of the reason why after we are so-called full after dinner, if you present a new course, dessert, 
we will somehow be interested and curious in eating that. Um, and it's actually how our brains are wired. And the variety seeking is actually to ensure that we get enough foods to meet our vitamin and mineral needs. How beautiful is that? Because if you eat just the same thing every single day, you're going to end up with literally deficiencies. So seeking out variety is an essential part of how we're wired to ensure that we are, are healthy. Um, because, you know, it was only a recent phenomena that we knew what a vitamin and a mineral was and we could actually test for vitamins, you know. So prior to that, we, we had no idea about that. Um, so I, I think that that's really powerful. And the other piece about um, kids that's really, really interesting that you touched upon, Karen, is I, I've been watching my daughter um, around Halloween as a really good example of this. And uh, I really try to, not even try to, I'm very deliberate in, um, in, in giving her full exposure to all foods and then let her decide how much she's going to eat. Um, and it's really fascinating to see, uh, you know, the normal kind of Halloween stuff. I want the candy. I want the candy. I want the candy. She comes home. She has a bucket full of candy. We leave it there. She nibbles on a few things. She spits half of them out. Uh, she comes back maybe the next day and honestly she forgets about it and then she just leaves all this candy there. I don't, I don't moderate it. I don't regulate it. I just let her go for it. I remember as a kid um, doing something similar with candy. I don't know. My, my, my grandfather gave us some money one day and uh, we went down to the, the local um, milk bar, we call it in Australia, which is a deli that used to serve single-serve candy and I got this massive bag of candy and I ate and ate and ate it and I couldn't believe it, but I got to a point where I actually felt sick um, and I never ate that much candy again because it felt terrible. And so, again, these are, just, these are just like biofeedback, right? These are things that our bodies will tell us about what we're eating and how much we're eating or what we're not eating, that if we really stop and tune in, we can actually trust our body. And I think that's the biggest piece that's missing now where in society now we're taught to not trust our body because if we, if we trust our body, it will lead us down the path of overeating um, and we certainly won't fit in ideal that is so valued right now. Yes, it is, it is, it is constantly being said in my office by clients, I cannot trust. I cannot trust my body. I cannot trust the food. I cannot trust. Often that is correlated with, I cannot trust anything. Like it's, you know, usually if we go out a little bit deep or go in a little bit deeper, there's, there's other obviously trust issues. I'm curious when you're working with clients, do you ever get triggered? Is there a client that you sat with that you thought, oh boy, I'm getting a little triggered right now? It's a good question, Karen. I'm just pausing because I'm just trying to think through um, if there would be a situation. The only situation that comes up for me is um, I wouldn't say triggered. I would say I don't even know if envy is the word or whether it's more nostalgia. Um, I used to be a runner and honestly it was part of my illness and then I got a terrible running injury and I could not run again. I literally couldn't run again um, and I haven't been able to run since then um, and I was running marathons 
And I, I can understand and accept now more the grey than the black and white because there was a long time there where I just associated my running with, oh, that was all about my eating disorder and the terror of weight gain. So I need to throw that all out as something bad. But actually I, I've come to a place now where there's a grey where I think the running was definitely about uh, anxiety and fear of weight gain and a way to moderate calories and all of that stuff that we know. But I think also it was my way of trying to medicate myself with anxiety, overwhelming anxiety. Um, so I can see the good in it now. But when some of my clients, to come back to your question, when some of my clients who are runners are talking about running, um, I miss it. I really miss it, Karen. And maybe I'm having a moment right now because we've been sheltering in place for six weeks. I've never been outside to walk, so I don't know if that is actually amping up my emotional reaction right now. Um, but that's the only time I think. The only other time where I would say not even triggered. Again, it's it's more of a um, it's a more of a sense of gosh, I wish I had that when I was going through my eating disorder. Um, we work with families at Balance, and uh, when I see families come together and lean in to their son or daughter's illness and say, tell me everything I need to know. Tell me what I need to read. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what therapist I need to go to to work on family stuff. And they really lean into it and they educate themselves and they ask really, really great questions. Um, and they they know that how could they possibly expect to be expected to be an expert on this? And mm -hmm. they know that they need guidance. And their, their sole goal is I want to get out of my own way so I can help my child, my adult child often. That often brings me to tears because I didn't have that experience with my family, uh, the complete opposite actually. So, um, again, it's not really a triggering. It's an observing of our clients and a reflection back on what we ourselves went through and struggled with and a sense of um, pain. I, th I, think, I think it pushes... A pain button um, and and I think the beauty of being recovered as we are and having done the amount of work that we have is that we can truly hopefully from this place open up our heart our hearts to our clients and truly truly only want the best for them and use that pain that we're experiencing as a way of embracing or trying to help steer them along a different course um, that would be more um, fruitful for them or, or help them with better outcome. Or, and I'm always, I actually often share that with the parents. I always point it out when I see family members leaning in in such a way. I say, you know, you may be, you may be shocked by this, but it's actually not the norm always. Parents want their best for their kids, but, but in order to do so, it requires a huge effort on their part and often a huge amount of work that they haven't done on themselves and for many of them, it's just too much. And I can I can respect that, but it's just very painful to witness. It is very, very difficult. And there are times when I also have to say to my clients, I can't, I can't change your parents. And by the way, I will never say parents are the cause of an eating disorder. I, there is never one thing. There is never one thing. Um, I've often said my family was part of my eating disorder and my family was a huge part of my recovery. So this is never about blame. And by the way, insert 
partner with parents or college roommate with parents. So I actually just want to take a step back. Whoever it is that they are closest with, it is not my job or the client's job to change somebody else because that other person is steeped in this culture and has their own low self-esteem or their own fears, whatever it is. It is my job though to help them learn how to live in a world where sometimes they, they, they don't have control over other people's actions. And sometimes it is family members. And how do you grieve that you're not gonna get that from your family right now? I also wanna say, I often say to clients right now, that doesn't mean that things are not gonna change later. Your parents are going through a process. Your college roommate's going through a process. Your partner's going through a process. So it's, it's interesting. I often get very, very touched when I do family work. Very, very touched by the family work. I, I love family work. Um, what, what do you use then for your own resources to help you navigate through, by the way, what we now call life? Anxiety, depression, pandemic, wonderful things, hard things. What do you use? What resources do you turn to? So it's a great question, Karen. I think, um, well, you know, I, I have continued to see my therapist and of course my psychiatrist, but talk therapy is amazing because, and, and we know this now in the field, right? That when we talk about what's bothering us, um, what's going on internally in our own emotional landscape, it gives us an opportunity by by saying it out loud. It gives us an opportunity to then process that emotion and to think it through, and to think about what we then think about that reaction, that emotional reaction, and collect data on ourselves, um, and also make decisions about. Do I like the way that I behaved according to that emotional reaction I had or do I want to try and work on that and not be so reactive or whatever? So for me, um, and I think honestly, I think everyone should be in therapy because it's just a way of, of it just helps you with personal growth, right? And we're always growing and learning about ourselves. Um, so that keeps me grounded. Um, I journal. Um, and I find that when something's bothering me or not even just bothering me, honestly, I mean, just kind of observations of life where I find that I'm thinking about something a lot and I'm really curious about it and I'm, I'm just trying to get a different angle on it. I like to journal. Um, and I've also noticed, um, I've also really noticed this a little bit more um, that I absolutely need creative input. So, so what I mean by that is art galleries or a movie or, um, gosh, music, some kind of creative connection that gives my body, I, I, I absolutely feel a complete relaxation response in my body um, with that kind of input. And one thing I have noticed about myself, and I think for a lot of people that struggle with eating disorders, we can tend to be very perfectionistic, very driven, and we can tend to, um, and I run a business, so there's always work to do. 
And I have to be really careful, Karen, because one of one of my strengths, but therefore weakness, is uh, I can tend to really jump into a project and give it everything um, and then end up really exhausted and wiped out and run down and burnt out. And so this idea of moderation is I'm still not good with it, but I work on it. Um, but the idea of just slowing down a little bit so I can let in these little windows of going to an art gallery or going and seeing some music or just playing some music at home or picking up a good book. Um, I've learned that I need to do that. And the best example for me that surprised me was um, maybe about 10 years ago, I guess just after I started Balance. And so my mentality used to be you work really, really hard and then you take a vacation in August or whatever, right? And then you work really, really hard and you take a week off over Christmas and New Year. And I'm from Australia. We don't we, we do not do well on yeah. three weeks a year. We do much better on six <laughs> weeks a year. <laughs> We're all living in the wrong part of the world right now. Totally. And so I, and and I was just beaten up all the time and exhausted and then I'd get sick and this was perpetual. It was ongoing. So then I, uh, for me, actually, the beach is very, very restorative. And then I chanced upon um, a friend who had a a beach house um, that um, they were renting out over the summer. So I went in on this share out here at Fire Island and I signed up. And so, you know, you got, I don't know, six weekends over the summer. And at the time, I remember in the first year, and I laugh at this, but at the time when my first weekend came up for my my break, I was getting packed up to go and I thought, I I don't know about this. I mean, here I am taking a weekend off and I don't feel exhausted, so I don't. I don't see the point to this vacation. I'm cringing just <laughs> listening to this. I know. Can you believe the mentality? So these are the steps in recovery, people, right? <laughs> There's the getting over the eating disorder and then you see yourself as you move through life and, and how you behave. And then, uh, and so, and so then I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll still go anyway. And so I went out on these weekends and it was lovely, but it wasn't desperately needed, which is how I usually equated going on a vacation. I had to be, it's almost like for our clients, I have to be absolutely starving before I allow myself to eat. Now, oh my goodness, as I said that out loud, I realized my own behavior patterns here. I had to be absolutely exhausted before I would allow myself a vacation. There you go. It plays out in all areas. And over the progression of that year, I realized by the end of the year, my gosh, I didn't kind of get burnt out in the way I normally do. What changed this year? And then it occurred to me slowly, because I'm a bit of a slow learner here, um, that by having these interjections spread out throughout the year, I was able to circumnavigate or I was able to prevent burnout because I was installing these little breaks throughout the year. Karen, it was like, (laughs) oh, my God. Can you believe that? So, oh, my gosh, I laugh at that because we're so good sometimes at giving advice and seeing what our clients need to do for themselves. It seems so obvious, but it's not so obvious, is it, when we're looking at ourselves? So, anyway. So you asked me about what do I do? Um, that that's when I realised that that essential taking time off was so essential and so important for me, and I still try to I continue to try to do that. Um, 
along with those other things that are more kind of day-to-day and week-to-week. And then I would think I would say the last two items that I noticed really helped ground me. Um, I have a dog. I got a dog 12 years ago, Miley. Yeah. And it's very true what they say about our little our little furry friends are, are so therapeutic because when we just look at our animals, there's a relaxation response that we go through because we just kind of, you know, those oxycotins is just like, oh, they're so cute. And you do, and it, it kind of, you have a relax, you have more moments of relaxation throughout the day. And then the last and final and, and most, most point, I guess, is my daughter. Um, and that is very, very grounding and at times infuriating, let's be real, um, but very, very grounding as well. And, um, and constantly reminds me to be grateful. Yeah. I think gratitude is also an, a very powerful grounding tool that keeps us in the, the now important thing that I want to be spending my time member and be in touch with our core values about what do I value in my life? What's, what's, what is the most important? There's two things I want to point on. Gratitude is actually getting me through the coronavirus. It, it is unnatural for me to not physically be in relationship with people. I am a huggy, kissy, lovey. It is unnatural for me to do anything on the computer because I'm so computer illiterate and now my entire day is on the computer. Um, It is unnatural for me to not be with my family. All of these things. Yet, I have so much gratitude and I don't take for granted that I have a wonderful family. I don't take any of this for granted. I can call them. I can FaceTime them gratefully. And please, if anyone out there has been touched with COVID-19, my heart is aching for you. I, so far at this point in, in recording the podcast, I don't have any loved ones who have been inflicted by it. I have so much gratitude for that. So when the days get long and the days get really hard and sometimes being a clinician during a pandemic can be overwhelming and draining, I don't disregard my overwhelm. I don't disregard my exhaustion. I don't invalidate it, but I do balance it out and I say, I'm healthy. I have family. I will hug again. <laughs> I will. I. I. It, gratitude is what gets us through. By the way, there is not one eating disorder behavior that is going to change the pandemic for anybody. There is not one eating disorder behavior that is going to change your loved one getting COVID nineteen. None of it. This is what I always try to say to clients. All you've done is put a stressor on top of a stressor. It is here. We are all shelter in place. We are all far away from our loved ones. Whatever it is, there is never going to be an eating disorder behavior that ever makes anything better at all. That that wasn't very poetic at the end, but I was like, at all. But it's, it's true. And gratitude, I think, is an underrated tool because people are like, ah, gratitude. <laughs> it is powerful. 
I, I have gratitude. I, you know, you can use gratitude for anything. I, as I've said, I lost my father 15 years ago, devastated, but such gratitude that I had him in my life and gratitude that he is still with me in my heart, in my soul. The other thing I wanted to point out is you made a comment. I pick up on like the funniest things. You said, by chance, I had a friend who was renting a house on Fire Island. It is not by chance, Mulaney. It is because as a recovered person, you are present you are out in the world. You have relationships. I know that when I was in my eating disorder, I didn't understand how do people have such good friends that they like go away to the Cape for a weekend? I don't understand that. How is it that people are so comfortable that they can hop on a plane? I don't know. I'm just making things up. It's never going to happen in an eating disorder. And I kept thinking the eating disorder was going to get me there. You didn't have these friends and this experience by chance. It's because you're, you're taking risks. By the way, being recovered is taking risks and being vulnerable, which is how we create friends. It is by getting out of our own way. It is not by chance, my darling. It is because you are recovered. Thanks for pointing that out, Karen. Um, and you know, you know, actually, as you've said that, and I've looked, I'm looking at it through this lens um, that you've put up for the first time. It makes me realise, Karen, you're absolutely right about that. And also, you think about it. If I were in my eating disorder, two, at least two things about that experience would propel me away from it. One, shared house, shared food. I can't control the food because the meals were part of a community. That was how the house was set up. So like, oh, my God, what would that be like? Can't do that. And the second thing, think body image, beach, bikinis, exposure of the body. You're absolutely right there. Like it, that hasn't, again, these, it's so helpful, isn't it, when you, and I think this is part of the recovery piece too is that, you know, out of the blue, you'll you'll get a new perspective on things that you hadn't thought of. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle that you're continuously adding pieces to and, and better understanding what happened that you developed the eating disorder, what happened that you were able to then go through recovery and what is happening now? What are the pieces that now help you to stay in your recovery? Um, so thank you for that insightful um, comment, actually. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. I. I just, I constantly go back to the idea of, I felt like I was living a life with like a, a glass wall in front of me where I could see everybody living life. I wanted it, didn't understand how to get there and kept thinking the deeper I go into my eating disorder might help, obviously did not. It only got me farther away from that. And so I just, I, there are so many things in my life that have happened to me because I am present and I am not in an eating disorder mind. So I, 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 I'm as soon as you said chance, I was like, mm -mm, no way, no way. That's like me saying it's chance that I met you. Melanie, I met you probably <laughs> 10 
12 years ago. I'm trying to think if I met you right before Balance opened or right as it did. Do you know what is so amazing? I remember what you were wearing. I have this thing about remembering what people are wearing when I first, you were wearing the most beautiful red dress, but it wasn't the dress that I noticed. It was your energy. It was the way you were talking to other people. We were probably at an IADEP conference and it is, it was just your presence. By the way, it wasn't your body that I noticed. I mean, the dress was gorgeous because you have the most beautiful fashion I've ever seen, but it's not your body. It wasn't how much you weighed. It wasn't how you wore the dress. It was your energy. I was hollow in my eating disorder. I had no energy to give out to the world, to, to have for myself. That's what being recovered is about. And everybody and everybody's energy is obviously different. Yeah. You know, Karen, thank you for saying that um, and highlighting that as well. And I, I do remember, um, I don't remember that particular moment, but I, I, I'm pretty sure it must have been an IDAP conference. And I just remember just thinking, I love this woman. <laughs> I love friends with you. I just remember that. You I and I. Was, oh, I was infatuated from day one. And um, But to your point, you know, when you're in the eating disorder, if I could think of it energetically, it's like you kind of, you're very inward. Everything is kind of, you know, you're, you're, you don't have a lot of energy to put out there anyway. So it's almost, it's, and we see this with our clients, you know, like when you're in the presence of your clients, it does feel often like they're hollow. You know, and they're 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 physically yes. there, but they're not necessarily energetically there. Or, and I want to point something out. I want to make sure we're being very clear. We are not talking about hollow from anorexia. We are talking about hollow from life. So whether somebody is sitting there with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, orthorexia does not matter. It is a hollowness. I did just want to make sure that we were very, so I, I apologize. Keep going. No, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> but it's a lack of energy, right? It's a lack of, a lack of, a lack of that, um, that energy, that energetic feeling that you feel around people, which is what we're missing so much now with our, our quarantine for sure. But it, it, it's quite stark. And so that is another really essential piece about about being fully recovered because oh, yes. you, you emit your natural personality, you know, and, um, and you come out and you do blossom. You really, you really do. We see this in our clients yeah. over and over. How They come alive. They come alive in so many ways and you see their true personality come out and it's just breathtaking to see. Um, it's, it's a wonderful aspect and a very privileged um, aspect of what we do. That's where I feel we are, I feel, I'll speak for myself, I am honored to do the work that I do. When I see a client start waking up spiritually, when I see a client cry for the first time because they haven't cried in years, oh my God, Melanie, I think, how did I get so lucky? Oh, I guess I'm, I'm using luck and chance, but wow, what? What an honor. I had a client who came into my office a few weeks ago and she said, I have never, I haven't cried in like five years. And now every time I come to session and she said, what's wrong with me? And I said, nothing. You are waking up. And sometimes waking up is really hard. And there's a lot of pain 
that you have to go through, but nothing is wrong. It, it, is, it is such an honor. It is, Karen. And one point there, you know, um, is that people with eating disorders are usually um, a little more sensitive. And there's been some really great research around this, right? And we just feel a lot more and we pick up on things a lot more. And so when we, when we are in the eating disorder, it's a way of, it's a way of kind of tuning out or turning off or, or, or dampening down that high sensitivity that we have because it's literally overwhelming. So as you said, when we go through recovery, it's a reawakening of that sensitivity, which can be painful and overwhelming, but part of the recovery process is, is learning how to be okay with that. And then the next step is also then embracing that because I, I, I love, you know, I used to hate it, but now I love it that we are so sensitive because it creates this ability to be so much more tuned in with your clients, with other people around you. Like we, we, we pick up on intuition, you know, we're, we're intuitive. We're very um, connected and can pick up on very subtle vibes. And, um, and I, I, I'm glad that I have that as a gift, but I also have to appreciate that that gift comes at the price of therefore feeling a lot more intensity. And therefore, as we talked about a little earlier, how, how important self-care is um, to our own biology, you know? I also think that, oh, first of all, I think I'm a pretty funny person. Like I crack myself up. <laughs> You crack a lot of us up, Karen. We love you. <laughs> it's so funny. It's ridiculous. Right now, listeners are like, oh, God. I love it. But the other part is humor that comes out, right? It's not, I don't want people to think, yes, you have to go through the, the, the sadness and all the traumas and all that. But also, I am funny. And I, but I wasn't funny in my eating disorder. There was nothing funny about it. And I think the best thing is that I can laugh at myself now. Because it's almost like now I have so much confidence I can laugh at myself. Like I don't care. It doesn't. And and there's something that you said earlier that just made me think of this. You were talking about and and I also think it's funny that now I can I can make jokes about things that 30 years ago when I was in my eating disorder would have flattened me. So I abused exercise when I was in my eating disorder, one of my many, many, uh, many behaviors. And first of all, I, I never knew how, I didn't understand how people could work. Like, how do you work? Because how do you get the exercise in? Like, there's not enough time in the day. Like, I, I managed my life so I had just enough time to exercise and all this stuff. Fast forward 30 years later. So you were commenting about, you know, how many steps you take. And now that you're in quarantine, there's like, you know, what, like 10 steps or whatever on your phone. About five years ago, I was actually invited into a step challenge, which first of all, I didn't know what it was because, you know, I don't know technology and they're like, it's this thing. It's on your phone. It records your steps. And I was like, all right, I'll do it. And do you know why they asked me? They asked me because they knew I am the laziest person (laughs) that would ever, ever be part of their group. And they knew that I wouldn't be a threat, that I was always going to come out last. And so... I used to show my steps at the end of the day 
to somebody who I was in the thing with and he'd be like, are you moving at all today? Like, this is really concerning. Like, did you even walk to your car? Cause it's humanly impossible to have such few steps. <laughs> and I thought it was the funniest thing I'd, I, and again, this is, I'm laughing at myself. Do you realize 30 years ago, I would have been devastated. I didn't exercise enough. I didn't walk enough. I was literally everybody every day was like, let's see how many steps Karen did tonight. Cause we know she's at the bottom of the barrel. And I actually held that title with pride, Mulaney. I was like, yes, came in last again. Wow, that's, life is funny and you have to be able to laugh at yourself a little bit. Oh my gosh, you absolutely do. I'm so glad that you brought that up. You know, I know we're gonna be finishing up, but my goodness, what a great stress reliever. What a great kind of let's get back to, you know, just the basics of it all. And, um, oh, I just love it. I just Oh, it was, it was like a thing. Every night, everybody logged in to see how few steps I did. They're like, hello. I'm going to start sending you, uh, you know, uh, screenshots of my, yeah. my flatline steps at the moment, Karen. We could have that and laugh about it. Oh, my God. As funny as it is, oh, thank God every day that I'm not ruled by my eating disorder. So I can see the humor and I can also see the, the, I'm going to use the word intensity, but that's not the right word. Thank God, Mulaney, because I, I was really sick and I don't ever, ever want to be like that again. I, I don't take my recovery for granted. In fact, I do have a little humor about it though. I just... I just thought that was funny. I thought, Steps, why is that sparking something in my mind? <laughs> oh, I know. Because I won the award for the least. <laughs> Melanie, I love you so much. I, I am like the luckiest woman in the whole wide world. I get to talk to the most amazing people between my clients and then the people that I have on this podcast. I just, I don't know. Wow. This is just, this is, this is amazing. So I want to I wanna end in a moment, but I, I want to end asking you a question totally outside of eating disorders. So my question to you is, if you could live in another time period, but stayed in the same place you, you live in now, when would that time period be? Wow. Uh, great question. I think, um, honestly, I would want it to be in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I would want it to be in the future um, because I think the, the big thing that comes up for me is um, leaving on a heavy topic, but I, I would like to see a lot more equality for women out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have a daughter and I know that being a female, um, I created my own business uh, as a woman because I didn't want to I didn't want to have to deal with the BS that I had encountered in corporate culture previously. Yep. Um, I would want to live in the future. I'd want to live in a future where there's more equality for women and certainly for our sexual minorities and there's more diversity and, and um, maybe I'm just overly optimistic, but gosh, I'd love to live in a, play, a, a time where there is just so much more appreciation and acceptance of each other. And there's just a lot more equality across all genders, race, uh, economics, um, 
And and we've got the whole climate crisis figured out. We're certainly not living um, in a time of, of risk of pandemics. So that would be, I think, what I'd like. I'd, I'm curious about what that looks like. Well, I can tell you one thing in that picture is I will be sitting right next to you. Oh, honey, I love it. Because I would like to live there and I'd like to live there with you. Oh, that'd be, I just love that, Karen. Big hug. Melanie, again, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You are such a beautiful, amazing human being and soul. Your, your, your facility balance is beautiful. The work you do is powerful. And I appreciate all your vulnerability and honesty and courage. And I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, Karen, what an absolute pleasure. Anytime, right back at you. You know, I adore you as well. Thanks so much, Karen. You are so welcome. All right, everyone. So that is it for this week for Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I will look forward to talking with all of you next week. Okay, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week.